You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1349 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Tuesday evening here in mid-November. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today and making us your first listen each and every day. Check us out across podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and also on YouTube on the video side. And today's podcast is going to be myself kind of breaking down some of the early season trends from the Hawks. It's 14 games into the season at this point in time. Also answering some mailbag questions on the show. And then at the end of the podcast, a look ahead to a big-time national TV showdown between the Hawks and the Celtics on Wednesday evening. And, of course, I'll have a full breakdown of that game after it is over on Wednesday night. But in advance of it, plenty to get to, honestly, a look ahead, a pretty interesting game to kind of get into. But uh, first things first, got a few questions about this overall, so I decided to kind of do a full segment about it. And it's basically a look at what the Hawks' numbers are telling us through 14 games. Now, it is still pretty early in the season. We're about you know, 15% of the way, something like that. Uh, obviously, a little bit more than that, but about 20% of the way through the season. But the offense, a little bit down for the Hawks compared to last year. The defense, a lot better than it was last year. Those are the, sort of the broad strokes. The Hawks have a pretty solid point differential, but not one necessarily that's uh, on pace to win 50-plus games. If you go by only that alone, it is still very early in the season, but a 9-5 record is also pretty solid across the board as well. But we'll dive in now to kind of what um, the numbers are telling us at this stage. And first thing we'll start with is the offense, which of course has been the Hawks bellwether the last couple of seasons with Trey Young on the roster. It's almost always going to be the case. He is of course an offense first, offense second, offense third superstar, but the Hawks have built their team this year differently. And we talked about a lot about a lot over the summer, but I know not every Hawks fan has dialed in all summer long. So broadly speaking, the Hawks decided pretty actively with their roster construction this year to kind of trade in a little bit of offense for the hope of better defense and kind of have their their plan built around that. Now, this is still a team that should have a good offense. No question about that. Trey Young, DeJounte Murray, John Collins, et cetera. But they definitely tried to push the defense a little bit more. And we've seen that sort of impact the offense at this point in time. So last year, the Hawks were number two in the league in offensive rating. That's obviously excellent. Can't really argue with that whatsoever. Right now, they are 13th as I record this on Tuesday evening. Now, that's not terrible by any means. It's certainly slightly above average, but not what the Hawks are looking for. Part of that, as we'll get into in a second, is the shooting has been a disaster at times so far. But there are strengths as well. The Hawks are currently leading the entire NBA in turnover rate. That is what you want to see. Ball security has always been a strength of this team the last two or three years. The Hawks were awesome at taking care of the ball last year. That's been the case again this year. Their league average or so in assists, which isn't fantastic when you when you factor in the fact that Trey and Ajante have so many, but they really only have two high-end passers, and it's just those two guys. Everything else is kind of just like plug and play, but those numbers are all pretty good on the passing side. The Hawks are, though, at least that's a, I believe it was two days ago, the Hawks are actually making the fewest passes in the entire NBA, which is not exactly a great situation. Now, it's understandable because the Hawks do run a lot through Trey, who dribbles the ball a lot. Same with DeJounte. Those guys are uh, more ball handlers than actually, you know, ball movers necessarily. And they don't have a lot of like beautiful game passing concepts. But I think you want to see a little bit, a little bit more than that probably moving forward, which might help the uh, sort of juice the offense overall. On the glass, the Hawks have been pretty good. They've actually been grabbing about 30% of their misses this year on the offensive glass. That's actually a very strong number. It's notably up from last year. Probably a big factor in that is DeJounte Murray, who changes the calculus a lot for this Hawks team. That's one of those areas where he definitely can help compared to previous iterations. 
The Hawks, though, are in the bottom 10 of the league in free throw creation rate. They were actually in the top six of the league. So they went from the top six to the bottom 10 um, in a hurry. Now, Murray is not a huge free throw guy. Gallinari was a good free throw guy. Plus, you know, other than Trey, the Hawks don't really have a lot of huge free throw creators. Now, they have been making free throws at a very high level. They're actually in the top five of the entire NBA so far. So that's not been hugely impactful, but the Hawks could definitely use some more free throw attempts. It's not just Trey. Obviously, Trey has been getting in line at a, at a very at a very solid clip, but nobody else really is, which is uh, why it was so refreshing to have DeAndre Hunter get to the line 10 times on Monday. Then you get to the shooting, though, where the Hawks are in the bottom 10 of the league in effective field goal percentage. They're 24th in the league in true shooting. Those are pretty uh, bad numbers for a team that's trying to be offense first. They are dead last in the league. And three-pointers made, they are 29th, which is second to last, in three-pointers attempted, and they are 26th in three-point percentage. So bottom five in all three categories, not what you want probably overall. I talked about this a lot, but Hunter is really the only guy, DeAndre Hunter is the only guy on the, on the entrenched side of like the key pieces on this team right now that is shooting better than 34% from three-point range. That's pretty wild. Now, it's going to come up. So that's on the bright side. There are guys on this list who – Almost certainly. I, I never want to speak in absolute certainty on most topics, but uh, let's just say Trey Young, uh, almost certainly. John Collins, almost certainly, will shoot better than they, than they have so far. Justin Holiday is actually second among guys who have enough attempts to qualify, three-point percentage behind Hunter. He's at 34%. Murray's 32%. Trey is 31%. Collins at 25%. And Jalen Johnson at 18%. Um, the only guys who are shooting well this year in a small sample size are AJ Griffin, unsurprisingly. He's already a very good shooter. And then Aaron Holiday on a very, very, very small sample size. Holiday's only taken 17 threes this year. So that almost doesn't even count. Um, but you know, generally speaking, three-point percentage has been a topic of conversation throughout not only for the attempts, uh, sorry, not only for the mix, but also for the attempts. They're not, Hawks are not taking a lot of threes. And they're taking the highest percentage of, of their shots of any NBA team from between four feet, which is that Florida range area, all the way to three-point line. So basically all long twos, quote-unquote, all non-rim twos. The Hawks are taking more of those than any team in the league. And they're shooting actually better than average on those shots, but they're not elite on those shots either. So it's not like they're actually in the top five. They're just okay to pretty good at those. But with huge volume, that does not necessarily help your uh, efficiency all that much. Now, they are pretty much league average in rim frequency and shooting accuracy at the rim, which is totally fine. If they're average there, that's kind of where you want to be. They've come up a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Capella's been finishing better around the rim. Trey's been a little bit better. We somewhat signs. Murray's been good around there when he's getting all the way there anyway. anyway. So uh, circle that as an area to focus on in the future. And I did this spiel last week, so I'm not going to do the entire thing again. But right now, according to Clean the Glass, which is a great service, the Hawks have the second worst quote-unquote shot profile in the NBA. They're 29th in location effective field goal percentage, which basically means the Hawks don't have the optimal shot profile. They're taking a lot of mid-rangers, not a lot of rim attempts, not a lot of threes. And this has to be expected to some degree because the Hawks do have a lot of guys who are comfortable in the mid-range. Trey, DeJounte, DeAndre Hunter, especially, those are the three guys that I would circle on that list. But even, you know, even guys on the, you know, even Jalen Johnson and AJ Griffin and John Collins and, and Collins was taking more mid-rangers this year. So anyway, that's not, that's not going to like be damning to them, but I think generally speaking, the Hawks are still probably in line to take more threes and uh, some more shots around the rim. Defensively, it's been much better. So they're eighth in the league right now in defensive efficiency. That is a huge, huge jump from last year and notably better than even two years ago when they made the conference finals. So a lot of that is dictated by opponent shooting. And uh, in fact, their defensive shot profile is not the best. It's like 
middle of the pack-ish so far this year. And the Hawks are top five in the league in shooting efficiency allowed overall. That is probably going to come down a little bit because teams are not making threes against them. Um, this is not a hard and fast rule, but most mostly experts seem to think that a team can take away attempts more than actually making teams miss from three at a high level. And the Hawks' opponents are shooting 32% from three this year. That's second lowest in the league. That's going to come up almost certainly over a larger sample size. Um, and the Hawks are also allowing a lot of attempts at the rim. Fortunately, though, the Hawks do have a lot of great rim protection. Clint Capella as the headliner of that, but Kongwu and even Collins, even Jalen Johnson a little bit. Um, they are pretty good there, and they're actually in the top 10 of the league in rim protection in terms of uh, percentage allowed. That might sustain because the Hawks do have the talent to go ahead and keep that up. Um, they are slightly below average in turnover creation this year defensively. That's actually a huge increase, though, because of Jadon, because of Murray, because of Hol- because of the holidays. They've been uh, even Jalen Johnson. They've been much more active and much more aggressive at forcing turnovers. Not a huge strength, but no longer a glaring, glaring weakness like it has been the last couple of years. And the trade-off there, of course, is that the Hawks are fouling a lot more. Um, in fact, they're allowing more free-throw attempts than any, than any team in the league per game, and they're second most in free-throw rate allowed. That's not a situation where you want to be in. Um, those are usually bad um, numbers to have. That has to come down in the future. Part of that, again, is good in that they're being more aggressive, but they're going to have to figure out sort of that, that middle ground between fouling um, more than last year, but also less than this putting teams on the line way too much. We saw that a lot in the Milwaukee game on Monday. Obviously, that's Giannis. It's kind of tough to defend him. But even in a vacuum, the Hawks have been fouling too much around the rim, uh, whether that's a Kong Wu, whether that's Johnson, whether that's Hunter's been in foul trouble a lot this year, et cetera. They have, that, that's been a problem area that they're going to have to fix in the future. And the last thing on the stat front, before I move on here, uh, this is kind of a little, little bit different of an angle, but the, the schedule strength has come up a lot and people asking me questions about that. The Hawks had the easiest schedule in the league in the first five games of the season. Now, we knew that coming into the year. I focused on it quite a bit in the summer months. Like, look at the schedule. It's so, so soft, the first five games. The Hawks were 4-1 and one in that stretch. They took care of business as, as they definitely should have. But it's gotten a lot more difficult since then. So I've kind of heard that people are talking about their, their soft schedule. The Hawks actually have a very middle-of-the-pack schedule now. In fact, they're pretty much like dead in the middle, like 15-16th in the league in winning percentage by opponents so far. And that's because after that first five-game stretch, they played the Bucks three times, they played the Sixers twice, they played Toronto, they played New Orleans, they played Utah, and they played a road game in New York. Those are all quality opponents, and basically with no breaks in the middle. That Utah game was supposed to be an easier one. It no longer is. They're actually quite good this year, at least right now. So basically since that, since that first uh, five games, they played a tough opponent every night, and the schedule strength is now middle of the pack, so you don't really have to like apologize or adjust for that too much at this stage. So... That's sort of a brief picture. I could probably do an hour show on that by myself. That's how much there is to get into if I want to, if you want to go to crazy depth. But again, overall, defense much better this year. And that was part of the plan. I think the Hawks, if you asked them with true serum, would have told you that yes, we'll probably be a little bit worse on offense this year. And the hope is they'll be a lot better on defense to kind of offset that. That has happened so far. The Hawks have a better overall profile per at least for through 14 games than they had last year, even with a worse offense by a notable degree, because they are so much better defensively. And as Glenn Willis has been saying, my friend at Peachtree Hoops has been on this podcast many times. He's noticed this a couple times on Twitter. Part of this is that the Hawks are able to win games now when they don't make shots. Whereas in previous years, it was a lot harder for the Hawks to do that because the defense and they're able to grind things out, get more stops, play ugly a little bit better. And that kind of gives you a little bit more margin for error because you're going to still have some good shooting nights. And that way you kind of blow teams out sometimes with doing that. But now they are capable of winning 
with low three-point volume or with misses around the rim or with turnovers because they actually can get more stops so far this season. So that's all I got for that for now. We'll have more on that in the future, I'm sure, but a good little primer here at the top of the podcast about what's happened in the first 14, 14 games of the season. All right, more to come on some mailbag questions and more, but first, a word from our sponsors on the show today. Today's show is brought to you by Turo, and Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car that you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget across the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and coming soon to Australia. Book a spacious SUV or minivan for a family road trip, or get a classic or luxury car for a special event, birthday, or holiday. Find affordable economy cars if you're on a budget. And if you just need to get from point A to point B, test drive the new electric vehicle if you've had your eye on as well to see how it fits in your everyday life. And many Turo hosts can even deliver the car right to you. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Term conditions and exclusions apply. Forget boring rental cars and find your drive today at Turo.com. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. And can we pause the podcast just for one second? All right. You have to try this with me. Listen to me now. I'm talking about the Built Bar new reimagined flavors that Cookie Dough Topper, Coconut Brownie Bar, Coconut Brownie Topper. Built Bar also has white chocolate peppermint granola, which is Built's take on the granola bar. So it's even more filling and still insanely tasty. There's also the Candy Cane Brownie Puff. Built Puffs are like biting, biting into the universe's most delicious cloud. And for anyone who has not tried Built Bar before, they are literally the best tasting protein bars ever built. And they're also changing nutrition the way that we know it at this point in time with 100% real chocolate. 17 grams of protein and shockingly low sugar and calorie counts as well. Stick your teeth into that first bite now, and it'll change your life forever. You're probably wondering which flavor is my actual favorite at this point in time. That's really almost unanswerable. There's so many new kinds that I really enjoy, plus the old favorite, like cookies and cream, that I've always loved. And they're all different. So you can actually order a mixed box today and get five flavors for yourself in one package. And get 15% off on the order right now by using the code LOCKEDON15 at built.com one more time check it all out today at built.com by using the promo code locked on 15 15 off at built.com all right and before we get into some mailbag questions a quick bet online check-in our friends at bet online are a sponsor to the show and the official sports book of the podcast and uh they actually released the updated lines today uh one of them that i wanted to at least know because they've got some talk on twitter was the mvp odds trey is actually uh, 10th best odds to win the MVP right now, which is better than he was preseason. People were like, why would that possibly be? Trey's had a bad year so far um, by his standards, again, obviously. But it's not surprising to me because it's based on team success, I'd imagine. You know, for as I said before, the season started, I actually thought Trey's MVP odds were pretty good value. And part of that was that the Hawks had the ability to win a bunch of games. And for Trey to win MVP, actually win, not, not just compete, but actually win, the Hawks probably need to be like the top two seed in the East. And also he has to have a great year, which has not happened so far. So he's going to have to have his efficiency come up. I'm not saying otherwise, but he's 40 to one. That's not out of the ordinary for me, but somebody asked me that question. I can't can't remember who it was. So my apologies on that. Didn't write down the name of that person that asked me the question, but I thought that's actually interesting, but also not terribly surprising because the Hawks have a formula for him to win MVP. If they were to win a bunch of games and have him have a great year, one of those two things is happening so far. And it's the wins, not necessarily Trey playing his best basketball. Okay. To the mailbag, a question from Scott who says, a great win last night and a great pod to listen to today at work. Thank you for listening, Scott. Um, and he says, for the mailbag, any updates on Bogdanovich would be nice as well as diving into Trey's shooting woes. Is this the worst it's ever been? How does it compare to seasons past? Keep up the good work. So on the bogey front, there is uh, plenty to get to, obviously, but also not 
a lot to get to. Um, it's a little bit of a give and take. I know I'm doing this uh, kind of repeatedly, but it's because there isn't a lot of news happening from the Hawks. The Hawks are pretty tight-lipped. Maybe McMillan does not give really anything. And as far as official updates are concerned, there's been zero on Bogdanovich, other than just listing him on the injury report in the same fashion. Uh, it's frustrating for me, frustrating for you, I'm sure. The Hawks had no practice today on Tuesday after the road, after the mini road trip. So no media availability and no real opportunity to see if anything's actually changed for him. Um, Reporting-wise, it is maddening. But Bogey has been working out and warming up more in public before games, shooting on the court, getting a little bit more activity in. Still nothing full speed, though. Not a lot of like flying around. Like His warm-up, quote-unquote, is different than guys who are going to be playing. He's not going full speed or anything close to that. There's some one-on-one stuff happening by all, by all reports. But the next big step for him is to get to three-on-three three and eventually into five-on-five five action. And we'll see how long that actually takes to get him from scrimmaging to actually playing in a game. The Hawks do have some incentive to be careful with Bogey. For sure, he was beat up at the end of at the end of the last two seasons, actually, with the knee. So uh, they want to make sure that for the long haul he is healthy and he has a player option for next year, which he want to be careful with as well. I'm sure. He even mentioned on the broadcast that he'll uh, have some mental hurdles to clear as well, which people don't always like understand. But he has played basketball in six months. It's kind of difficult to go out there and trust your knee in that setting. The Hawks are nine and five. That definitely helps to have them not have the incentive or the urgency to push him along. And uh, long-term, having him healthy in March and April is more important than having him kind of ramp up right now if he's not quite ready to go ahead and do that. As for the Trey Young factor here, I'm not going to do the entire thing now, but I think that he obviously has not shot the ball well this year. In fact, he has uh, career lows basically across the board. He has a career low in field goal percentage, 38% right now through 13 games for him. A career low of three-point percentage at 30.9%. Volume is still there, just not making his shots. Two-point range, 41.2%. His career low was 47.7 as a rookie, and it was 49 two years ago in a, a quote-unquote bad season for that. Um, career lows in true shooting percentage, effective percentage, etc. Uh, it's been pretty much every area. He's been worse at the rim. He's been worse in floater range. He's been worse in the mid-range. He's been worse from three. Um, his mid-range shooting, as far as like the adjusted play-by-play stuff that you definitely see from places like Basketball Reference, he is actually shooting pretty much the same in one area, and it's that like mid-range, like the actual mid-range, not, not, not the long two, but the mid-range, like, like 10 to 15 feet. He's actually shooting quite solidly there, but he's way down from floater range. He's, um, you know, especially even close floaters. And then his long twos, uh, this is a crazy stat. The, the two years before this, Trey was essentially uber elite from that 16 to 23 foot range. Those actual, actual long twos. He shot 53% two years ago, 51% last year. For reference, that's like a factor. That's a number that guys would kill to have on that shot. And one of the reasons why long twos are considered to be bad shots in a vacuum is because most guys cannot shoot that level of accuracy on long twos. But Trey has proven over two years that he can. This year though, 37%. So that's a number where you can't handle that shot anymore. Anyway, broadly speaking, because the question was about Trey shooting, uh, I am not worried. I do think though, that it is not um, something you can just like parse separately. I think Trey's struggles are linked to some degree, and sort of, you could sort of argue how big that degree is to the Hawks having less spacing around him. He is facing more crowded defenses. He is facing just less space to operate. And because he is so small, um, having less space definitely matters to Trey. Now, he's, he's still going to make more shots than this. I think it's a combination of his own slump and also uh, having less space. 
but we'll see how that all kind of factored out. But yeah, it's kind of crazy that Trey Young in year five is having his worst shooting season because you might remember this as a rookie, Trey was pretty bad for the first three or four months. He found it late in the season and obviously had a good season up to, I think second, it was obviously second rookie of the year voting, et cetera. But early in the year, he was really quite bad efficiency wise, but he found it so far this year. He's been worse than that, which is kind of crazy, but it's actually the case. Uh, for the record, he's still a better player now than he was then because he was he's in more control. Um, he's a better defender than he was back then. That's kind of a low bar to clear, but still. Um, anyway, Trey, short version, I'm not worried, but um, it's a combination of the bad spacing and also his own bad shooting to this point. Question coming from Brian. So this, sorry, this is not for Brian. Brian's, Brian's later on. Uh, this is actually from Bobson who says, I'm seeing a lot of 2020 redraft tweets Akongwu seems to be low if he's listed at all on the, some of these lists behind some guys that I admittedly don't know a ton about. Are there that many players that are better than Akongwu's outlook in that 2020 class, or is it a function of him being looked over as a raw backup? So, interesting question here from Bobson. Uh, redrafts are challenging, especially for people that don't necessarily know the draft process all that well and are just going off of results for small sample sizes. I do believe, broadly speaking, that Akongwu is now pretty undervalued compared to other guys in that draft class. And the biggest reason is what Bobson said. is because of uh, basically his role. And it's not anybody's fault. It's that Capella is really good, and the Hawks drafted him on a team that had a good center on the roster already. Also, the injuries. Akongwu has played the 24th most minutes career in his, in his draft class. And while some of that is because he's a backup, some of that's because he's missed like half the games in his career so far. He's been healthy this year, knock on wood, but um, that's part of why I'm sure. And if more, more people saw him play, I'm sure he'd be higher on some of these theoretical lists. There are some guys who I think would go ahead of him now that went behind him in the draft. I think most people would probably rather have Tyrese Halliburton or Desmond Bain. Those guys probably go ahead of Kongwu in a redraft. I've kind of said that a Kongwu is closer to those guys than others might think that he is. But I think if you're being objective, most people would take those guys over a Kongwu right now. Also, um, you have guys like Anthony Edwards and LaMelo Ball who already went ahead of him that would still go ahead of him. But on the other on the other side of that, Okongwu is definitely a better prospect than James Wiseman who went ahead of him. He is definitely a better prospect than Isaac Okora who went ahead of him. Patrick Williams, same thing for the Bulls. Um, I'm not going to do like the whole redraft or anything, but I think Okongwu would definitely go higher in on my list than some people's lists because uh, basically he has been a good player when he has played. It's not his fault that he was drafted on a team that is trying to win and has a guy who is a top 10 center in the league in front of him. Akamu could be a starting center for a lot of teams right now and do a good job with it. I've argued, and I still would argue he's the best backup center in the league right now. Um, obviously he's a little bit different than some backup center types because he's more versatile, a little bit smaller, etc. But I think Akamu is already really good, like a top 25 or 30 center in the league. Despite being a backup, and I think that he would uh, he, he would go higher for me than others, let's just say, on the redraft front. So that's all I got on that one. But I think that, uh, no, the short answer is I wouldn't worry. And also, um, there are not that many players with a better outlook than a Congo from that class. My list would probably only be like five guys, if, if that. I think he'd probably go in a similar range for me now at number six overall than he went previously. It would just be a little bit of a different order ahead of him. All right, we'll have uh, one more break here here from our sponsors. We'll have more mailbag questions and then a look at Hawks Celtics, which is coming up quick on Wednesday. Be right back. We're from our sponsors right now. Today's show is brought to you by Bet Online. Basketball is in full swing now in mid-November. Bet Online is the number one source for your wagering information this year, including the stats, ana analysis, news, and beyond. 
everything you're looking for in one place this season. Get the latest odds and trends for every pro and college league out there online, and that includes the latest in football and basketball and soccer, esports. They have golf, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, all of that and more at Bet Online. Bet Online is also the fastest and easiest way to get all, all of what you're looking for in the sports betting space. And if you love sports podcasts like this one, you can find sports podcasts and more at Bet Online. Check out Bet Online on your mobile device or on a computer to learn more about all the trends and the action across the sports world today. Bet Online, where the game starts. All right, and the main event of sorts on the mailbag was that I got three or four or five or ten questions about the same general topic, and I'm going to answer three of them in one right now. One is about Vidanovic being slow to return and the need for perimeter shooting. Do we have options this season, or are we stuck with what we have till next season? That came from John. Connor asks, if Griffin continues to produce, how do you see him getting into the lineups when Bogey returns? And then the therapist asks, would a rotation of just Bogey and AJ as the backup wings work effectively, or do you think that we need Justin and Aaron's defense? So all those are a little bit different, but they're all kind of the same question. Uh, and with regard to the Hawks' options in Bogey's absence, they don't really have any. Like I think we've already seen what they're going to do until Bogey comes back. It's going to be some combination of Griffin and the Holidays in that role. That's kind of their only options. Like behind that, it's like Trent Forrest, Big Krejci. Those guys are obviously a lot further away than the Holidays and Griffin actually are. As far as trade stuff, um, I would need to know what's going on with Bogey before I wait in on that. Because if Bogey is back and they believe that they'll, they'll be able to play by Christmas or whatever, there's no need to really trade for a guy to fill that spot. Bogey is a reliable player in a lot of ways. Um, but as far as AJ's playing time is concerned, when Bogey comes back, that is a question I'm getting a lot of right now, and I totally get it. I think there is definitely a path for AJ to stay in the rotation with Bogey coming back, which is a credit to AJ. Because if you ask me that question preseason, all right, let's assume Bogey is back. Is AJ Griffin going to play? And my answer would have been probably no, because he's a rookie. And they have depth in front of him. And I think defensively, there was enough questions where I'd be worried about playing him. Now, he's been better defensively than I would have thought. He's still not great defensively. I want to be very clear about that. But the offense has been so far advanced so far for a 19-year-old guy. Not only the three-point shooting, but just the way that he's been operating with the ball in his hands, um, taking a very mature, under-control approach. All very enticing stuff there. I don't think he's locked into playing time. If he struggles, that's at least worth noting. But I think if he plays well, which is what the questions were, like, yeah, there's no reason why he would have to come out of the rotation when Bogey comes back. The big the big question as somebody asked there was uh, basically, could the Hawks roll with Bogey and Griffin as the third and fourth wings on this roster? And I think yes is the answer, tentatively speaking. Part of that is how Bogey looks defensively because Bogey last year took a step back defensively, I thought. And Griffin, I was not a huge plus defender. So in certain matchups, it would be a little bit tough to play those guys together. Now, offensively, they might be devastating because Bogey is really good on offense. Griffin already pretty scary on offense as well. Pair, pair those guys with one of the guards and uh, let's just rock at that point in time. Um, in certain matchups, they might need to use Aaron Holiday to play kind of a pest defense on a good lead guard size guy. In some matchups, they might need to do Justin Holiday to guard a high-end wing player that maybe Griffin or Bogey can't handle. So it might be matchup-based, and I would hope maybe Millen is a little bit more open to tinkering a little bit. I know he's not a fan of experimentation from his answer last week, but I think the Hawks need to be a little bit open to that when Bogey comes back, especially because Griffin might just play himself into a bigger role. That's definitely possible. We'll learn a lot more in the next few days. Like I think we might see Justin Holiday on Wednesday, if I had to guess. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but against Boston, 
that's probably the matchup in the entire league where I would say the Hawks probably need Justin Holiday more than they need Aaron Holiday. Just for an example, because the Celtics are based on their wings in a way that other teams maybe aren't. So that's one to circle in the future. But as for Griffin, I think if he plays well, he can, and in my opinion, probably should keep playing both for a long-term development and also because he is helping them. I think that if that changes, it's a different conversation. Damon Millen is not going to be playing him if he thinks he's hurting the team. That's, well documented. Nate is playing for now versus the future, but I think the dual, for me anyway, the dual possibilities and the dual pluses of having him develop long-term and also help you with your offense right now are worth it to keep playing AJ as much as humanly possible. Okay. Um, one more here quickly before we get out of here and get into the Celtics game on the way out. A question from John, who came, who sent this via email. He says, I expect there to be more fast break points for the Hawks, given the rule change in our high-flying roster. Other than, the, other than the occasional steal and jam, it's not playing out how I thought it would in our favor. Am I, am I missing something, or did the rule change not affect as much in the NBA other than, the, other than to actually make the game quicker? So the rule change, if you missed it, was the elimination of the take foul, where if you take a foul now um, intentionally to stop a fast break, it's a it, it's a double penalty where the team gets the ball back, et cetera. So for clarity, though, to answer, John, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not picking on John, but actually um, the Hawks have done well with this. The Hawks are number eight in the league right now in fast break points, um, averaging about 15.9 per game. That's an excellent figure. Small sample size last year, uh, sorry, this year, but last year the Hawks were dead last in fast break points. Hawks played very slowly last year. They didn't run at all. And part of that was because they didn't force turnovers whatsoever. Um, that's the biggest change. Like having Murray and having Johnson to, and even the holidays to kind of create some havoc has been helpful to kind of push the ball. But from a league wide standpoint, fast break points are definitely way up. Only two teams last year averaged more than 15 fast break points per game. This year, that number is nine. That's a lot. Last year, nine teams averaged fewer than 11 that's three points per game. This year, it's only three. So basically, across the board, teams are running and finishing more in transition. Um, so part of that is probably the take foul or the elimination of the take foul. Um, also, scoring is up as a whole. I actually heard a podcast about this from Kevin Pelton, who is very, very smart from ESPN. He laid this out. And he sort of attributed some of it to the take foul. And I agree with that. Part of that, you know, scoring is always higher early in the season when, when guys have fresh legs. But um, scoring is way up across the league. And part of that maybe is that transition is a little bit more free flowing, which I think is better for the product. Generally speaking, I like that rule change quite a bit, but as for the Hawks, the Hawks actually have had a lot more fast breaks and a lot more kind of showtime moments this season in transition. So if you like that, uh, as I do, I think that's a good rule change. It's also probably helped the Hawks. Um, and I will say the Hawks last year in particular um, with Gallo and bogey, those guys were two very high frequency take foul artists and even Trey does that a lot, did that a lot as well. Now, uh, Gallo is probably you know one of the proprietors in the entire league, basically. And now the Hawks have kind of uh, gotten gotten used to not doing it, which is probably helpful, but it's helped their offense, I think. So um, just circle that and moving forward to the future. Okay, uh, last thing on the show today is a little bit of a preview of the Hawks-Celtics game for Wednesday. It's a big one. It's a 7.30 tip-off at home, State Farm Arena. It's an ESPN game. The Hawks have not had really any showcase games nationally this year. This is the first big one on the agenda for that. Boston, by the way, is red hot. They're 11-3, and three, best record in the NBA. They've won the last seven games in a row. That's the league's longest winning streak. So a tough opponent, obviously, at home. The Hawks uh, are facing a Celtics team that's number one in the league in offense by a lot. They're lighting up from the floor. They're number one in true shooting. They're in the top four in two-point shooting, three-point shooting, free-throw shooting, and field goal percentage. So that's basically across the board. They've been awesome this year. And they're number two in turnover rate. So they never turn the ball over, and they make every shot. <laughs> a tough uh, tough 
recipe to defend. Um, the only thing that they're not good at offensively this year is rebounding. So the Hawks have a good chance to kind of wall off that that on, on the glass in this game. But the big thing is it's a challenge to defend both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown for really any team, but for the Hawks in particular. They have been starting both Grant Williams and Al Horford, so playing those guys at the two and three, Brown and Tatum. I think you'll probably see Hunter get the first crack at Jason Tatum, if I had to guess, and it probably be DeJounte Murray on Jalen Brown and Trey Young on Marcus Smart, if I had to, again, throw out a guess there. Um, they kind of have to put Trey on Smart for most of the time, unless he's guarding Derek White in certain matchups, but um, there's nowhere really for Trey to hide. That's a great spot for him to hide. They could try Collins or maybe even Jalen Johnson on Tatum at some point if Tatum's, Tatum's playing the four, but I think it'll be a lot of Hunter. And again, I mentioned it earlier, but I would definitely um, probably be trying to use Justin Holiday in the bench role in this game, not in place of AJ, but in place of Aaron, because Aaron Holiday's prime role is to be a sort of deterrent against ball handlers that are small. And in this game, uh, Justin's size, uh, at least length and acumen against Jalen and um, Jason Tatum would be very useful, I think, as the fourth wing in the spot. So we'll see. Defensively, Boston's usually awesome. This year, they're kind of just average, maybe even below average. Um, they don't create turnovers at all this year. They're actually dead last in the league, which is kind of weird for them. They're usually a pretty aggressive team, but they're okay. I, I think it's not going to be like, it's not like a soft matchup for the for the offense for the Hawks in this game. But the Celtics have been sort of having a slow start defensively, and they are crucially playing without Robert Williams, who has been their anchor. He was awesome last year defensively, and that makes them worse. Also in this game, Malcolm Brogdon is listed as questionable. He's been a solid guard option for them this year, bring, coming in from Indiana. Of course, a local product from GAC in Atlanta. And uh, injury-wise for the Hawks, just bogey. So nothing else listed. That's obviously a positive. And the health continues for the Hawks. Generally speaking, only Trey has missed a game uh, for injury other than uh, other than bogey. And Kong missed that one game for personal reasons. But it's been pretty clean other than bogey, which is uh, definitely a positive. Last year, the Hawks and Celtics split their four games. They were two and two. Um, the offensive numbers were actually pretty modest in those games. It was pretty uh, pretty low scoring, kind of rock fighty for the most part in those four matchups. But uh, yeah, they're they're small. Those Boston is, but they're still very physical and very very good in the market right now. Boston's probably either the favorite or a top three team to win the title, and certainly in the top two along with Milwaukee to win the East. So a nice challenge. The Hawks do have the home court advantage. In this game, um, the even rest advantage in this game, they both played on Sun, uh, on uh, Monday night, I should say. So uh, no real, like, no huge edges there. And our friends at Bell Online make the Hawks a two and a half point underdog, despite being at home. So basically, on a neutral court, they're saying Boston's like a four or five point favorite against the Hawks, which might not sound crazy to me. I think Boston's playing very well, and again, they're leading the league in offense, best record in the league, winning streak, all that. Maybe they're due for a downturn, and maybe the Hawks can sort of flip the script on them a little bit. Definitely a winnable game for the Hawks, for sure. Um, I think it's appropriate for them to be underdogs, even at home. But we'll see how they fare in this game. And the Hawks have been playing well. So 9-5, could be 10-5 by the end of the day on Wednesday. We'll have full coverage of that one. But ESPN, a lot of extra eyeballs, uh, sort of guard your takes. I, I, I could sort of definitely attest that anytime the Hawks play on ESPN or TNT, the takes from outside forces come in, and people don't people have not seen everything that the Hawks have seen. I put on tape, I should say, this year. So uh, prepare yourself for, for a silly take or two nationally from someone. Uh, it's usually how it always happens. But uh, we'll have the detailed, nuanced coverage of the team on this podcast. And I definitely encourage you to subscribe to the show and tell a friend about the podcast. Spread the word. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, all those fun places. Also follow us on Twitter at Lots on Hawks. Follow me on Twitter at BT Roland. And we'll see you all after the game on Wednesday.